When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Today, I will be speaking with Scott Meslow about his book, From Hollywood with Love, The Rise and Fall and Rise Again of the Romantic Comedy. The book was published in 2022 by Day Street, an imprint of William Morrow. Scott discusses romantic comedies from 1988 to the present, featuring such titles as From Harry Met Sally, Pretty Woman, Love Actually, and many others. He talks about how the traditional format changed over the period, including a time when the genre seemed almost dead. We also talk about the rise of more diverse characters, writers, and directors in recent times. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Scott Meslow. Thanks for joining me, Scott. Pleasure to be here. I am interviewing Scott Meslow, author of the book From Hollywood with Love, the Rise and Fall and Rise Again of the Romantic Comedy, published in 2022, back in February, I think, by Day Street, an imprint of William Morrow. Um, I'm glad we were able to find time to talk. Uh, I like doing all kinds of different types of interviews, including academics and people who wrote books about just one film or one genre. So I think it's useful to have all kinds of things, including more popular writing. So, and I've done that before, so you're not the first time. So I'm, I'm glad we had a chance to talk a little bit about your book. Yeah, it's, it's going to be fun. So first off, let's talk about you. Um, you're obviously been writing for, for a long time. Is this your first actual full-length book? It is. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was a real mountain to climb in a good way. I've written about film for most of my career, mostly in entertainment journalism. Uh, I write for GQ and New York magazine, um, previously written for the Atlantic, but to do a book, that is a, that is a whole different challenge I learned in real time. So let's talk a little bit more about that. What, first off, how did it come about? It, was it something you tried to do, decided it was time to do, or were you approached? Everybody's a little different on that. And I know a lot of our readers, they may be aspiring writers or actual writers, and they tend to like to, listeners, excuse me, like to hear a little bit about wh- how something came to pass. Yeah, mine was a little bit of both. Uh, it started, I was always interested in writing a book, um, but at one point an agent reached out to me after a feature I'd written, basically saying, I think you might have a book in you. Do you have any ideas? Uh, and I knew, I thought about this for a long time, I think as many writers do. And one thing that had really interested me is looking at some kind of film genre. I just thought it feels like there are stories worth telling that you could 
you could track a genre over a course of time and by that make a broader point about Hollywood, culture, all of the things that I've always found interesting writing about film. Uh, and when I started to kind of winnow down which genre I wanted to dig into, both from a what is there new stuff to say about perspective and a what do I want to spend two years of my life doing, uh, rom-coms locked in pretty quickly where once I, once I kind of had the idea for the book, which begins with When Harry Met Sally and goes right up to today, um, looking at that 30-year window and basically saying this was a hugely important and tone-setting genre for Hollywood, uh, launching a lot of careers, making all these you know, hugely successful movies, then famously, you know, there were all these death of the rom-com pieces. And in my argument, I think rom-coms are very much back right now and are going to become a backbone for the new Hollywood that we're in. Uh, and so looking at that arc, it became pretty clear to me there's really a story to tell here and by telling the stories of the individual movies you can also tell a story that says a lot of other things about the business so that's that's where it went and from there we took it to a publisher who was interested and then i was off to the races that sounds good um i know in your author's note right at the beginning you do a lot of defining one of the good things about being an author is you get to set the rules as long as they're not completely you know Hairbrained, although these days you can get that published too, I guess. Um, just maybe not with a good publisher like Morrow. Uh, where did? How long have you been working on this overall theory about what a rom com is and the time period you wanted to consider? Because obviously you you covered a thirty year period starting uh, in with Harry Met Sally when Harry Met Sally, as you said. Um, what made you decide that that was a good place to start? There were a few things about it. Um, one of them inevitably was just practical. You know, I wanted this book whenever possible to be an actual history of the movies I was covering. The book, there are 16 chapters in the book, each of which covers a different movie specifically, which meant I needed access to writers, directors, stars, you know, people, other people behind the scenes, you know, whether that be hairdressers or set decorators. And if you go much further back, it gets much harder to get those interviews because some of those people sadly are not with us. I mean, even even starting with when Harry met Sally, I couldn't talk to Nora Ephron, obviously, because she passed. And I couldn't talk to um, Gary Marshall, who Pretty Woman is the second chapter, and he's also passed. So as much as I would have loved to get into the history of like His Girl Friday, there was nobody for me to talk to from that film. So, so there was a practical element to it. But I also, I was really interested in talking about modern Hollywood. Um, and as I thought about what was important about the rom-com genre, it struck me that when Harry met Sally really defined what a rom-com would look like going forward, you know, in addition to Nora Ephron kind of being the queen of the modern rom-com, in addition to launching her career in rom-coms, it was, it was kind of an unacknowledged remake of Annie Hall. Uh, and the big thing that it did differently was it gave it a big happy Hollywood ending, which was not the original plan. The, the original screenplay they wrote was, you know, Harry and Sally don't end up together, pass each other on the street later, and just kind of, you have this wistful moment. And then, when Rob Reiner, during the production of the film, met the woman he fell in love with, who he's still married to today, that so inspired him that they reworked the entire ending. And I, to me, that is like a microcosm of what was interesting about rom-coms in the 90s and 2000s. It was like, they were going from this transition of like the very Woody Allen, James L. Brooke, like a little more grounded, a little more melancholy, and they became big, crowd-pleasing, you know, big, big emotions and unrealistic and increasingly detached from reality, which is part of where I think the crash came in. Um, but when Harry Met Sally really hit that balance right on the on the bullseye. So to me, that starting with that movie really, really set up where the genre went um, and where I think where it continues to go. There's a reason it's a touchstone. 
Let's also talk about the definition part, because as you've pointed out, there are people who are probably going to disagree with with some of your what you didn't call a rom-com more so than what you did. I don't think there's anybody that's going to argue with the ones you actually chose. There may well be people who might say, well, what about this film? Why isn't it? Why didn't you talk about this film more? So where did that come from? Yeah, that happened a lot. Um, and w- truly one of the delightful things about writing a book about rom-coms is once it was announced and people would ask me what I was working on, inevitably they would tell me their favorite rom-com. And I love those conversations. Like I, I, it's, so, it's so much fun to hear these movies mean a lot to a lot of people. But I found very quickly that someone would say, oh, my favorite rom-com is The Notebook. And I would have to very gently be like, I'm not sure that's a romantic comedy. That's a pretty serious movie. It's a romantic story for sure. Or someone would say, you know, my favorite rom-com is The Devil Wears Prada. And it's like, oh, there's a love story in that, but but it's not, really, that's a story about a woman at work and her relationship with her boss, uh, with, a, with a romantic subplot with the world's worst cinematic boyfriend. Like, there were all of these, there were all these movies that sort of lived in this liminal space where they were, I think partially just because they were marketed as rom-coms. There was this aesthetic on posters in that era where it was like, you know, a white poster with someone kind of like leaning on the title. Um, and that would imply rom-com even if it wasn't. Uh, so it, once I was figuring out which movies I actually wanted to include and which movies even counted in my scheme, um, I, I began outlining the book with a, probably a list of like 70 or 80 different rom-coms. Um, and I had to winnow it down because that was that would have been a very unwieldy book to write. I'd still be working on it now for sure. Um, and so I started to work on A, what movies were rom-coms and B, what movies said they were interesting in themselves and successful or, or you know beloved or there's something more to say, but also something that said something about the genre. Um, so when I, when I kind of came up with the definition I'd worked on, I'd had kind of a working version of it. Um, but it really winnowed down for me when I, um, when I interviewed a director who actually directed Miss Congeniality and Grumpy Old Men and How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, all these, these movies that are right on the knife's edge of rom-coms and some of them are, and some of them aren't by his own definition. And what he told me is that his trick was if you remove the love story from a movie, is there still a movie? And if if the answer to that is no, then it's a rom-com. If not, then it is, you know, take a movie like Miss Congeniality, which is, there's a love story for sure. And you could even argue it's a rom-com, but if you take that love story out, then it's a pretty good comedy about an FBI agent undercover to beauty pageant. And, and that you can totally imagine that movie coming out without a Benjamin Brad love story. Whereas if you look at How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, that is a movie about two people falling in love and and combat and you know battling each other and if that's not there that movie is 3 minutes long like there there's no plot so that was a really helpful working definition to me um and then the other wrinkle that i had to throw in especially when stuff like the notebook was coming out is like it has to make you laugh the goal as simple as it sounds like sometimes rom-coms can also be tearjerkers like i i definitely tear up at the end of when harry met sally but but that is a comedy much more than it's a drama even when there are occasional dramatic scenes in it so that that working definition was really helpful in just kind of figuring out where I should go. It's funny. I was when we were when we were going to talk about that section. I was just going in my mind. Okay, can I think of an example that you don't specifically list but works the same way? And I came up with it. It's it's Tootsie. Oh, it's sure. a love story in Tootsie, but it really isn't important to the overall plot. It has nothing right. to do, and and it's a comedy, but it's certainly now we can talk about all kinds of things related to Tootsie, but none of them have to do with it being a rom com. Yes, exactly. And that's, it is another one of those movies that if you thought about it for two seconds, you might go, oh, yeah, it's a great rom-com. And the deeper you go, you go, I don't think so. But 
But I love, I mean, people, people challenge me on these definitions all the time too. That's the other thing. Cause. And then of course you come back and say, it's my rules. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if you look at something like, you know, Phantom Thread, I think some, sometimes a movie is not called a rom-com because of snobbishness. I think that was the best picture winner. So it can't be a rom-com, but to me, it clearly is. Now, what is your background or your knowledge of rom-coms from the past? I know we don't talk about them at all in the book, which is fine, but do you have your own personal favorites of older movies prior to the period we're talking about? Oh, for sure. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty, I, I'm not going to blow anyone's minds with my picks because they're acknowledged as great. You know, it's stuff like Bringing Up Baby, stuff like His Girl Friday. I mean, these these movies that are, you know, the, the reason that they are still shown in film schools, the reason that they still, you know, you'll get special screenings around Valentine's Day like they are. There are so many great rom-coms and I miss, I miss that era of rom-coms. I wish I could have written about it more in the book where it, it just felt like, it felt like the genre, it was, it was like a rom-com before people were calling them rom-coms. And so they, it, it felt like genre wasn't necessarily the biggest part of what those movies were even doing. Um, and, and they were movies for men and women and they were movies where, the roles were balanced and they were, there were subplots. Um, I, I love the battle of the sexes movies. Like I, I think there's a rich vein. And I, one of the things that I hope for with this book, um, which I cover a little bit in the conclusion is if, if you like the movies that I cover in the book, you should go back further to the movies that inspired them because, because that is, that is a very fun journey to go on. I, I really hope this is just a jumping off point. And the other good thing about that is nowadays with streaming services, it's hard not to find a lot of these older films. I mean, Criterion Collection does often feature, or Criterion Channel features rom-coms sometimes as a genre, you know, just by themselves. Uh, obviously, TCM, Turner Classic Movies shows a lot of them, and then they show up. Just about every streaming services has a classic section. So the good thing is, it's, then you have to figure out, okay, which ones count? You know, go to your definition. But anyway, it, it's great. Let me ask you, as part of your background, where did how did you come to film in the first place? Obviously, that's a lot of your writing. What yeah. made you decide that film was something that was going to be part of, was going to be your life as far as career? I am definitely the I'm I, I know a lot of like great journalists who are like born journalists and you give them a beat and they can work it. Uh, I am definitely on the other track where I I came to writing about film through loving film, um, and if I if I weren't writing about film and television, which is most of my, most of my beat, I, I'm a culture writer, but mostly film and television. Um, I couldn't instead be covering economics or healthcare. You know, this, this is the, this has been a real passion of mine and it, it goes way back. Uh, I, I was definitely, you know, the kid who would bike up to the video store uh, and, you know, go to the classic section and grab a random VHS and bike back home. And that's what I would do every day, every summer in middle school. I, uh, I worked at a movie theater in high school, um, and I, part of one of the perks there was that you got free infinite movies for you and a guest, and I saw everything, good or bad, didn't matter. I'd go to every movie that was playing, uh, which I think was very instructive for me, maybe more so than, um, than I went to school. Uh, I went to Loyola Marymount in Los Angeles, um, and I studied English and screenwriting. Um, and so that, that kind of, I think, that the, the independent education and then the formal education between those two things... Um, that was kind of the beginning of my career. And then when I got it, my foothold in journalism, I, I found as quickly as possible a way to get to what I actually wanted to write about. And I just kind of hammered that until, until I'd established that as my beat. Well, it's good. Sometimes we don't always get what we want and to be able to be able to work in something that, that it was so important to you is great. So, so that's good Very to lucky. hear. Um, 
One of the things, let's talk a little bit about the structure of the book because you mentioned the basics, but I want to sort of add on to it. Basically, you have the chapters that are developed, devoted to a particular film, and then you have an essay after each chapter dealing with a particular individual. Sometimes somebody who was involved in that film, sometimes somebody who had nothing to do with any of the films in your book. So, for example, chapter two is about a pretty woman, but the essay is about Sandra Bullock. So they're not necessary, you know, they're not related 100% except for some of the comparisons that you bring in the discussion. For example, that it seemed for a while that Sandra Bullock and Julia Roberts were up for the same roles over and over again. But we're not talking about, you know, because you don't even have a single Sandra Bullock rom com in your list. And that's where we get into the discussion, like you say, with miscongeniality of is it really a rom com? And of course, the answer is no. And as many comedies as she's made, how many of them count as rom-coms? I mean, obviously it's important to, to a lot of them, but you, 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 like you say, you have to go back and forth. So how did you decide these separate essays, who you wanted to feature, especially since, like I say, you don't always feature someone who was in the film you just discussed? Yeah, I at least tried to keep those thematically linked, chronologically linked. Um, the The essays to me were a really important way to a, get a little more criticism in there because the chapters are, are more histories. Um, so that was, that was kind of putting my reporting cap on and the, the essays are more putting my critics cap on. Uh, it was a way to cover more ground in the genre that again, it, it would have been too much to get into all of the things I wanted to. The Sandra Bullock, very easily, I could have done a chapter on While You Were Sleeping or The Proposal. Um, some of that was just I needed to keep the book moving and I couldn't get too mired in like the early nineties. Um, and in some ways I could, I like while you were sleeping a lot. I, I think I've said most of what I find interesting about it in the essay about Sandra Bullock. Um, and to a degree with the essay about McConaughey, because he was, he was briefly considered for while you were sleeping as well. Um, but I think more often the essays are, are a way for me to cover a part of the genre that couldn't mandate its own chapter. Uh, I was really interested in someone like Judy Greer, who was a great interview for the book um, because I love the archetype of a rom-com best friend. I think that's such a fun and interesting, weird permutation of the genre and the idea of she's so she's such a great interview because she can talk about how she's played the best friend in so many of these movies. And so often her job is just to deliver like bald exposition in a fun and interesting way. And like what an interesting thing for an actress to specialize in or or because they've sold product placement against a movie, like she has to be the one to hold the Coke can facing the right direction <laughs> so that they can get their money. Like that, that's a part of Hollywood that I think you don't hear about as often. Uh, and I was really interested in covering that. Um, and that some of them are, there, there's an essay, say, for example, on Ryan Reynolds and Dane Cook in the book. Um, and they, I don't think other than maybe the proposal which Ryan Reynolds did with Sandra Bullock, I don't think any of their movies are in rom-coms are successful enough or distinctive enough to merit their own chapters, but I was really interested in them as kind of avatars of what was going wrong with rom-coms at the time, where you you kind of had this Judd Apatow era that really redefined rom-coms for a lot of people as it, these basically unacknowledged rom-coms that he made. Their, their trick with the 40-year-old virgin and Knocked Up was they could get men who would not typically see rom-coms to go see them because they marketed them as raunchy comedies uh, quite successfully. And so to me, looking at how that spun off with these two actors, looking at their career arcs was much more interesting than looking at any individual movie either of them made. Uh, so, so really, the book structure sort of dictated itself to me at some point where it was, 
I would figure out what I wanted to write about and what was interesting about an era. And then I would figure out which kind of peg to, you know, wh which slot to put that peg into. Of course, then you also made sure to discuss, I mean, this is meant to be a, a great overview of, of the genre, but you don't pull punches in the right places. For example, you make it pretty clear most for many of the films that you discussed that they're male made. They were made and written often by males who controlled in the end where it went, although there are, as you pointed out, between Nora Ephron and, and others, uh, there are rom-coms now, not just rom-coms, films that women do have control over. And um, that is a, an issue. And it actually, I think it's probably one of those issues that does flow through uh, your book in that we did finally get into a point where we're starting to see a slightly, you know, some of that's lessening for some films, at least, especially depending on who the star is. As we've pointed out, Sandra Bullock and Julia Roberts have quite a bit of, con I'm sure, had quite a bit of control in many of the films they've been in. And that helped. And then producers who happen to be women or as we get later on, African-Americans, Asians and so on, who continued to build onto the to the already existing genre. So it was great that you made sure to point that out so people didn't think, well, what about this part of rom-coms? That's, that's not necessarily as always as, as nice. Yeah, I, I don't think you could write a serious or responsible history of really any, any this era in Hollywood without acknowledging the huge blind spots in gender, in race, in the people who were making these decisions. Uh, I think... It's, it was nice when I could focus in the book on the people who kind of heroically charged forward anyway. Uh, Nia Vardalos, who uh, you know, starred in and wrote My Big Fat Greek Wedding, uh, is an icon for that. I mean, she literally mounted that as a one-woman show for a very long time, took, you know, took a lot of no's before anyone said yes, and made the biggest rom-com of all time. Uh, Nancy Myers is, I think, a hugely important figure, certainly... You know, she has never made an unsuccessful movie. She, even now, you know, Sony stopped giving her the budget she required because of broader and more frustrating changes in Hollywood. Uh, but, but she was, you know, she was making these hugely successful movies for a hugely underserved market. I, you know, I don't know how you can look at a movie like Something's Gotta Give, you know, this massive success and, and not be impressed with, you know, but, but it was, you know, hard sledding for her to get that movie made. It, it always was. Um, and I, you know, the answer on Hollywood diversity problems is the same frustrating answer it's been, which is like, it's, it's getting better, but not quickly enough. And it never should have been a problem in the first place. Uh, I, I think the streamers are at least, it's getting easier and easier to make the business case for why diversity is important, because a lot of the really successful rom-coms of recent times have been much more diverse than the rom-coms of the nineties. Uh, but I, I hope it keeps changing faster and better because I mean, on both a on both a like a human moral level and a quality of the movies level, it's it's a big step in the right direction. Yeah, so let let's get a little bit more in depth on some of the films. Obviously, as you pointed out, you used a chronological, you you went chronologically, and like we've already mentioned, your first one was when Harry met Sally. Um, what I'm finding interesting, and this is something I'd like to hear a little bit more about the prior period, just before you started with when Harry met Sally. One of the big things we see in rom-coms in this period is that we get to the R-rated rom-coms. Now, I know when Harry Met Sally wasn't R-rated, but of course Pretty Woman was, and Pretty Woman started as a drama, mm -hmm. uh, and you go much in depth as to where the story for Pretty Woman came in. Was this a period where we started to see that 
uh, writers and and directors were saying, well, we can let's move out the edges a little bit. Let's not make this. I mean, obviously, many rom coms still work as as just basic love stories, but something like Pretty Woman, for example, which obviously had trouble translating into a film that ended up being a comedy because of its subject matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Pretty Woman is an especially fascinating test case. I think that that is probably the craziest production story in the book and probably the craziest one I've ever heard in my career, where you know this very dark and grim kind of Sundance slabs screenplay about you know this this you know sex worker who gets picked up by this very abusive billionaire who then kind of manipulates her makes her fall in love with him and then literally dumps her back on the street and throws money at her like it is not the rom-com that we ultimately got in theaters uh, but I think I think sort of paradoxically that might have been why that movie ended up working so well that there was just enough of the authenticity in the final version after much massaging that um, that the stakes felt a little higher, that people people really understood kind of the darkness that was always creeping at the edges of the story, which is part of why that unapologetically sentimental, super gushy fairy tale ending where he shows up and, you know, saves him right back in the whole, you know, they, they have this cutesy little exchange on the balcony uh, or on the fire escape. Um, I, I think that that blend of tones is almost impossible to replicate. It sort of took that movie being as dark as it was from its inception. Like you couldn't have planned that movie to come out that way. Certainly that's people who people who made it feel that way. But but in the broader context of the genre, I think I think you're right in that like one of the one of the subplots running through the book is the constant battle between what content is deemed appropriate for a romantic comedy. Certainly that's much of the subject of the chapter on there's something about Mary. Uh, which is a, that that movie was, the studio bought it and then immediately hated the movie they bought and fought every single scene that is now iconic from that movie and that made it such a huge success. But like, nobody thought it when they were making it. That, that including the people starring in it had serious, serious doubts about pushing the content the way they did. Uh, but it turns out that that was at least the special sauce in 1998 to make, to make a rom-com that big. Right. So, um... As we've already talked about, in fact, isn't Julia Roberts the only one that actually appears in two different films in your list? Oh no! Th- oh no! Well, if we're going to be my best friend's wedding, that's also going to be Cameron Diaz. So she yes. appears in that, and there's something about Mary, and of course, Julia Roberts is in Pretty Woman and, and My Best Friend's Wedding. And, and when several- we get to that chapter a little bit, you talk about how Julia Roberts actually plays a character who's not necessarily the nicest person in the world. Not necess- I'm using the word necessarily. Is she isn't in this particular yeah. case, and um, it, it it's and it's clear because she pretty much says it right from the beginning. This is what I'm going to do, and everything she does, you can sort of see it from that. So where does the line go as far as trying to make sure that you can do a rom com, but that your character, especially the main character doesn't go too far over the edge with that kind of edginess. I think that is a movie that really pushes that line about as hard as you can. That's uh, that's a movie that when I, when I was kind of figuring out what movies to do in the book, um, I obviously like any, like any parent, I love all my children equally, but, um, but if I'm being honest, like I, my best friend's wedding is a favorite of mine. As much as all of the movies I think in the book are worthy, I, I love that movie. And I came to love it more as I wrote about it. Uh, and it was, it was partially because I was so impressed the deeper I went with how much it was kind of playing with Julia Roberts. I mean, she was hugest star in the world at the time, not even close. Uh, there, there wasn't really a, a second. Um, as much as Sandra Bullock had come up, as much as 
this was Julia Roberts's peak. Um, and she made a choice to make a rom-com where it's sort of dancing with the, the, the kind of classic rom-com themes and archetypes where you, and it's weaponizing her image where you, you know, Julia Roberts is going to get the guy. It's a Julia Roberts rom-com. That's what she does. Who could possibly resist how charming she is. And they just keep turning up the heat on how unlikable she is. And she keeps doing crueler and weirder things. And I think everyone has a point when they watch that movie where they go, maybe I'm not on board with this, you know, where you, in the cliched version of that movie, you meet Cameron Diaz and she's awful. Like he's got this awful fiance who's manipulating him or wants his money or, you know, there's something like that. And, and it's Julia Roberts making him realize that, well, but she's afraid to like break up his relationship because she's such a nice person. Like the cliched version of that movie is very obvious. Uh, and I think a lot of people go into that movie thinking that's the movie they're going to get uh, because it's Julia Roberts. And not only not only does it get to the point where she quite literally does not get the guy um, and where, where she has to admit that she was wrong. And, you know, we're talking about rom-com definitions. I, I had to think hard about, does it count as a rom-com if she doesn't get the guy? Um, and ultimately I decided yes, um, in part because there's such a rich love story with her platonic best friend. Uh, but I think the other really bold thing about that movie is casting Cameron Diaz, that, that was a pretty big gamble for Julia Roberts because not only is she inviting her theoretical box office competition to co-star in a movie with her, she is so winning and likable in it that it, it is possibly cannibalizing future rom-com roles for her. And Julia Roberts, it, you know, as, as everyone I talked to for that chapter told me, she, she really wanted to mess with her image. She really wanted to push that line. She was really ready to, to break out of the rom-com mold she had been known for. And I, I think you can see it in the movie. And I think the movie is that good as a result of that. Yeah, I remember Notting Hill. That was another one. I mean, we're going to talk. We'll talk a bit in a minute about the British rom-coms, but that is an interesting character that she plays. She's actually not the lead. Mm-hmm. I mean, of all the ones we talk about, how she can, you know, she's often the main person. In this case, she's not, although Hugh Grant is. But anyway, um, and she plays a character who's not necessarily the nicest person in the world, but. You sort of understand it, though. It's it's one of those things that sort of comes through in that film. And I think that's an example of where she came into a British comedy and played a different type of character than she had been playing in other roles. Mm-hmm. And I, that's not one of the films I cover in the book, but I know it really well. Um, and I, it, it easily could have been. I just, I had a lot, a lot of Richard Curtis in there already. Um, but it, uh, but that's, she's talked extensively about how much she related to that character and how could she not, you know, it's, she's playing the biggest movie star in the world. Uh, and so it's ultimately, I think more a fantasy for Hugh Grant, who's clearly just playing Richard Curtis as he almost always does in Richard Curtis movies. Um, but, but the fantasy of what if you could date the biggest movie star in the world? Um, and, and Richard Curtis actually did have a friend who he's always been oblique about it, but he had a friend who had a similar situation where he unexpectedly started dating a very famous person. Um, and I, but I get where, you know, you put that in front of Julia Roberts, even though she's not the lead and she can finally say like, well, this is my story. I can't go anywhere. I can't have a normal relationship with anyone, um, including the people who, you know, the Hugh Grant character kind of puts her on a pedestal. How, how can you not, when you're the most famous person in the world, you're bringing a weird subtext to the relationship, even if you want to see her as a human being. So I, I get why that would have been very resonant for her at that phase in her career. So speaking of Hugh Grant, uh, Let's talk a little bit about the British rom-coms during this period, because obviously there are quite a few of them. I mean, obviously you only cover cover a couple of them, but uh, you've got, uh, as we've already talked about, 
uh, well, we haven't talked about yet, but Four Weddings and a Funeral, which is Hugh Grant. Love Actually, which is Hugh Grant. Uh, Bridget Jones's Diary, which is Hugh Grant. And obviously he, for that period, of t- for a period of time, was one of the most, if not the most, obvious choice if you were going to do a British rom-com. Yeah. Um, but that has changed over time but uh, as as and these are chapters that are not next to each other they're sort of spread out through the book so uh and you you just talked about it tell talk a little bit more about richard curtis and his importance to rom-coms especially the british kind not that these are all his but you know the concept of the british rom-com yeah i think that's a really interesting sort of um sub sub genre of the rom-com even though i mean they're very much conventional rom-coms i don't want to overstate how different they are but i think to me to me the british rom-com of this era just is richard curtis even even the films that he you know he, he only had a writing credit on bridget jones but it's very suffused with his sensibility um and he you know he used to date helen fielding who wrote the novel it's based on so it's interesting there was this small group of people who were very much defining what a british rom-com looked like um and i think to me, what defines his movies, there, I, I, I will concede I have sort of a love-hate relationship with Richard Curtis rom-coms. Uh, I, I will confess that Love Actually is not my favorite, even though it's a chapter in the book. Um, it, it's a movie that I find really interesting because it's doing so many things at once, but I, I think the quality of the stories it tells are all over the map. Um, it's got some brilliant stuff, and it's got some stuff that I find unwatchable, pretty much. Um, but I, I like... I like Four Weddings and a Funeral a lot, partially because it's, in addition to being kind of kicking off this British, British rom-com era in a way that certainly was much bigger than anyone expected it to, it, it's also the era of the indie rom-com uh, at a time when independent film was really taking over um, and, and becoming such a movement. It's interesting to watch something so unpolished, um, even though a lot of really talented people were working on that film. Uh, and I think if you're going to identify the male rom-com lead, it is Hugh Grant, um, which is the other thing that's so interesting about those movies because it's Hugh Grant is extremely resistant to rom-coms, even though he made so many of them. He has talked about how much he wanted to get away from that type and talked about how little he relates to the type he became so popularly associated with, that kind of floppy-haired, you know, dreamer, you know, stammering. He's he's much closer to the character he played in Bridget Jones, where he's kind of this like rakish, a little bit of a cad, um, but he... Richard Curtis really, really under duress, you know, against, against Richard Curtis's own wishes got cast as Richard Curtis's avatar. And Richard Curtis has since confessed many times that he was completely wrong about that. But Richard Curtis really wanted Four Weddings and a Funeral to be about a guy who was unattractive, um, as, as Richard Curtis apparently finds himself. He, who, the guy who would never, you know, much more, much more average looking. Hugh Grant is obviously a very handsome man. I don't think I'm going out on a limb when I say that. Uh, and so, so to to have this this archetype established that then just kind of carried over where every every time he recollaborated with Richard Curtis it was just another variation on your idealized Richard Curtis type um, and I think the other to me the sort of grimmer subtext of these movies that I find frustrating is these were the movies that got more attention from critics and awards attention in part because they centered a male protagonist in a rom com uh, and Richard Curtis is obsessed with love in his personal life. Um, he's had a longtime partner, but he also, he's very much inspired by, by love stories in his own past. Um, and he, he keeps making, he, he's moved away in more recent years, but he kept making rom-coms because it was a subject that, subject that genuinely interested him, which is part of why I think those movies feel so personal. Um, but to do that, he really had to center his own perspective. 
Um, and so I think that's, you see that over and over again in the movies that he was making. I want to talk briefly again about more about Love Actually only because I don't think I saw it in the theater. I think I saw it on video when I first saw it. And and I know we you talk about this a little bit in the story of the book, of the film, in your essay or your, your chapter on the film. I found the beginning when when Hugh Grant mentions 9-11, that actually got me into the film because I said, this is the first time somebody's going, is using it as not a plot point because that he never mentions it again, but as a jumping off point. And I found it interesting. I know uh, it's one of those things that uh, might not necessarily be interesting to other people, but I did find that that particular part of it interesting. And there's no question that it, the problem I think, and 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 I went I went ahead and went after I read the chapter there, I went and read, read, read <laughs> speak English, read Lindy West's uh, shit Ashley, and read the essay on Love Actually, and she got it right. She did. I mean, almost a hundred percent. But there is stuff in, there are ways, if you look at it, If I think if they had cut out certain of the subplots, like a lot of them, uh, yeah. <laughs> it, might, it might have been better. But I think, I think having it not be one complete love story after another by having, uh, you know, the issues with Alan Rickman and, 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 and also with uh, um, Laura Linney. By having those in there, it helped to give the film more uh, gravitas, I guess, even though you're right, there's a lot of stuff in there where you get lost after a while. And then trying to figure out who's related to whom, and you obviously that's where that part of it I found funny, because when you suddenly discover that the prime minister is related to somebody else and all that kind of thing. So that part was interesting. But the more you watch the film, I agree with you, the more it doesn't always work. But I, I think you're right, too. And it, it certainly, I, I wrestled with it a lot because I find it hard to dismiss um, because I I like specific things about it. I think... To me, the the 9-11 reference up top is is jarring at this point in an interesting way. I don't think it felt that way in 2003, but it's become this Christmas classic. And to so to have the movie situate you in a very specific place in time, it's like it gets further away from that and becomes more universal every year. So it's this interesting thing about it. Um, and I I like conceptually the idea that he's going to do, he's going to explore every kind of love. He's going to, he's going to find some way to get to, you know, everything from the very cliched love stories to you know, platonic love and love between friends and, you know, brokenheartedness. Like I, I think that's interesting. And I, I sort of love that despite my huge problems with how it's executed, because I just, he's just so bursting with ideas, um, you know, in a way that it, there's stuff in that movie. Emma Thompson is so good. It is such a good performance and it is so heartbreaking to, and it's, it's unresolved in a way that I admire. Like, like, I think that it's a very bold choice that she she finds out her husband has cheated on her. Uh, it's the film doesn't fully confirm that, but it's certainly been confirmed by interviews after that. He, he straight up had an affair with his secretary and she's just got to live with that. And that's that's the end of her story like that. That's kind of an amazing thing to put in a romantic comedy uh, to in. But then how do you balance that with, you know, this the this awful subplot where this British dude flies to Wisconsin and picks up this gaggle of American, like a harem of women, basically, which is just like the most 
gross male British power fantasy thing where there's just these empty headed blondes, you know, we don't know anything about it except they're very beautiful. And they're just instantly drawn to this guy. And it's, to me, that's not cute. It's not funny. It's sexist. It's gross. It's like a gross, and they exist in the same movie. And I, 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 I don't hate that movie like Lindy West does. I don't love it. I certainly don't feel I ever need to see it again after watching it a bunch of times to write this book. Um, but I, I get why some people love it. Um, and I, I think it's, it's certainly endlessly interesting to unpack. I think uh, not to plug somebody else's book while I'm talking to you. I think her book is worth reading partly because of, and, and just to make sure it's clear, what she does is that she rates everything as it relates to the fugitive. Harrison Ford's The Fugitive with Tommy Lee Jones. That's what she considers. She gave that a 13 out of 10. And then every other film she she reviews is based off is is based off of that. And it's an endlessly funny. It's and her her essay on Love Actually was a zero. So, <laughs> but she wrote about it. But it's a zero. Everything else at least got something. But uh, so anyway, you mentioned it in your book. So it's not like I'm. That's where I went from there. Oh, I, so. I love Lindy. I'll plug that all day. That's great. Buy that too. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. Let's talk a little bit about um, how these films, some of them, and I, I'm going to focus on How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days as my example, where there's a storyline where one person knows the truth and one person doesn't. And the concern as a film filmmaker of making sure that that doesn't interfere with the storyline, the idea that somebody could be manipulating the other person because they know something the other person doesn't. And it's not always a uh, gender thing either, because I'll be honest with you, I found the last part of You've Got Mail to be completely, I didn't like it because he manipulated her because he knew. And But Norep from did it. So, you know, you, you can't say it's specifically of the gender of the film writer, but the idea of, a, of one of the characters having control and how does that possibly could change how people view the character mm -hmm. that's and how to lose a guy in 10 days is an interesting example of that because they are both manipulating each other the whole time and so for that movie to work and i that's one of the movies that people have when, when we've talked about the movies in the book people have pushed a little harder on me about whether or not it belongs in this category uh, of movies that elevate to the level of discourse you know, worth unpacking on that level and i really think it is partially because, you know, we talked about how I couldn't really get older movies in there. It is such a throwback to the Battle of the Sexes, like very explicitly doing, the, the plot is so contrived and ridiculous that, that she, in a fun way, I think, I think the movie's doing it intentionally, you know, but that she is simultaneously writing this story about losing a guy in 10 days while he's made this bet that he can make her fall in love with him. And that they make that bet basically at the same moment. It is, it is such a contrived over the top premise, um, but for, for that movie to work for you, you kind of, two things need to be happening. You need to, you need to accept that one of them is not being meaner than the other, that they are both being similarly manipulative and, not, and that one of them is worse. And that there is also a deeper subtext where they are actually falling in love, even though they're never being honest with each other. And I'm not convinced the movie earns that second one. I think they have a lot of chemistry, which helps. If you look at Kate Hudson and Matthew McConaughey, I think they can, you can see that there's a genuine kind of pulse between the two of them. Um, but, but that, you know, the truth is that's a movie that ends, you know, when he, 
an ending I, I actually have huge problems with where he basically talks her out of going to interview for her dream job in Washington, D.C. to hang out with him in New York, uh, which a lot, a lot of weird stuff to unpack there. But also they, you know, they, they're kissing on a bridge in Manhattan, but like they don't know each other at all. They've essentially never had an honest conversation. So it's not the world's most promising place to start a romantic relationship. I, I think about the scene in Speed a lot where, you know, where you've got Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock, not a rom-com, but great love story in that movie where, you know, they talk about how basically people who are in situations like this, you can't rely on what they're going to do. And Speed 2 Cruise Control is no classic, but it makes sense that they're not together in that movie. Like it's, it's a more, there's a more realistic pulse there, even though the reason, the real reason is they couldn't get Keanu Reeves back, but like, of course you wouldn't. There's, you're building a relationship on sand. Um, And I, I don't really necessarily look at rom-coms as prescriptive. I don't think it needs to be a healthy relationship to to be a fun relationship worth doing a movie about. Um, but but yeah, there's there's varying degrees of plausibility to me. And part of it is if they're just lying and being terrible to each other for the whole movie, why are we supposed to be excited at the end? Let's talk a little bit about um, rom-coms that are uh, devoted to minority characters such as Waiting to Exhale and Crazy Rich Asians are the most obvious ones in your list. Um, where do, what's the status of those during this period? I know nowadays, in present time, I think it's safe to assume that uh, that's not as big of an issue as it used to be given all the films that are out there now because of streaming and everything else. But Waiting to Exhale had its issues because the fear was they couldn't find an audience. They wouldn't find an audience, so therefore, we don't want to make this film. Yeah, that's that's that was absolutely some of the more frustrating interviews I did in the book because it was it was such a battle to get this made, even though it was this massive hit as a book by Terry McMillan. Terry McMillan wrote this novel that was this huge hit. She had to she had to bootstrap it herself. She put together her own book tour, reached this huge underserved audience. Like you could not gift wrap a more obvious like take that to a Hollywood executive like nobody's making movies for black women. Like, why, why don't we do that? They will show up and, and, and you can get, you know, you can get Whitney Houston and Angela Bassett. Like, like it's, it is such an obvious grand slam. And sure enough, they released the movie. It's this huge hit. Uh, and then they make when Stella got a groove back after that with Angela Bassett. So at least, you know, they adapted another Terry McMillan book, but it was like, no one took the lesson from it. Uh, it basically everyone in Hollywood, which you'll be shocked to hear was mostly white men. Uh, we're like, well, that was an interesting one-off. Like, what else? What can we greenlight that's the same stuff we've always been doing? Uh, and that, to to talk to the people who made that movie, who made a great, I love Waiting to Excel. If, if you people listening to this haven't seen that, that's uh, it's on HBO Max right now. I think it's a, even though it was a big hit, it weirdly is a little more overlooked, I think, in the modern day. And revisit it. It's great. It absolutely, like, the presages with Sex and the City does. And I think Sex and the City sort of ripped it off. Um, except, of course, changed the, changed the skin color of the four main women. Um, but, but I think to look at, to look at a Hollywood that just didn't get it, um, even though there were great filmmakers who were still, I mean, I, I don't cover any movie from this era, you know, with a non-white audience in as much detail as Waiting to Exhale, but you can look at stuff like The Best Man or, you know, Queen Latifah made a whole string of great rom-coms, um, stuff, stuff that's a little more on the line, like Love and Basketball, which I think is a romantic drama, but a very good one. Um, there, there are there are these great movies um, and, and very much worth visiting. But the other, the other darker thread that I had to pick up on this subject is I've got, a, I've got an essay on Will Smith 
um, who has starred in one rom-com, Hitch, a huge hit, one of the, at the time, one of the biggest rom-coms ever released. Um, and one of the things he was told while making that movie is he could not star opposite a white woman. And it wasn't that audiences wouldn't accept it. It was that American audiences wouldn't accept it. This was 2005. Uh, and he was told that in the, you know, in the end they cast uh, Ava Mendez as his love interest, but he was told can't, can't be a white actress. And that's, that is not that long ago for the biggest star in the world at the time to, you know, he, he's coming off all these, this string of these huge blockbuster hits to be told straight up in meetings that he, he could not star opposite a white woman in a love story. I mean, that's, I'm not, I'm not sure we're that past that era. I mean, that's, that's still pretty unusual. Rom-coms have definitely gotten more diverse, which I appreciate, but but I think the studios, especially at the studio level, still hold a genre bias. You know, I, I write about J-Lo. J-Lo loves rom-coms, always wanted to star in them. She could do anything she wanted. She could go on a you know, stadium tour right now and, with music, and she doesn't ever have to be in a movie again. And she keeps making rom-coms, but she, she got made in Manhattan after like Sandra Bullock turned it down. Hilary Swank turned it down. She was told that you don't have the look we want in rom-coms. She was told this in meetings. <laughs> like it's... It's not even it's not even coded. There was explicit racism in in the decisions being made in this era. Um, and again, I, I I don't think I could have written a serious or responsible book about rom coms if I didn't acknowledge like there were people doing great work. But but the fact that this stuff was a problem and continues to be a problem is just inexcusable. So one of the things I wanted and and we've been talking quite a bit, and I don't want to miss this question. One of the points you made at the beginning of the uh, at the beginning of the book was that the up and down aspect of rom coms. When was the period during this thirty years that you felt that the rom coms, the the downfall or the bad part of the of the rom coms? When are we? T- what kind of stuff was going on, and, and and where did things go wrong, so to speak, with rom coms for the middle of this period? Yeah, that, that's basically in the early twenty tens, um, and I it was really hard to find kind of the emblematic rom-com that's sort of what indicated where things went wrong and in the end um the one i found was a rom-com that never got made um which is the untitled royal wedding romantic comedy by which would have been by nancy myers and to me this was just this was a perfect example of that because it was more it wasn't about audiences not being interested it was about a change at the studios is ultimately what i concluded um and that was a movie incredibly proven it was a movie that was it was written by the guys who did 500 days of summer um it was going to be directed by Nancy Myers, who, you know, coming off, something's got to give the holiday, these huge hits. Um, and it was, it was going to be right after the actual Royal wedding with Kate Middleton and, and Prince uh, William. And it was going to be like an American woman goes to, goes to the UK and, you know, meets a guy and it turns out he's a prince. It, it, it was kind of pitched as like meet the Royal parents. Like it was going to be this romantic comedy with this funny subplot. I like, to me, that is, it is such an obvious hit. Like you, you put any, at the, at the time it would have been like Anne Hathaway and Chris Pine or something. Um, it, it would have been huge. Um, but, but sure enough, you know, what, what happened with that is that studios ultimately decided it was going to be too much money and they pulled the plug. Sony bought it after a bidding war and then never did it. Um, and to me, that's the real story of what happened with rom-coms. It, it's a bit of a misnomer. There were all these kind of the hand-wringing op-eds about like the death of the rom-com in the era. I actually think it was the death of the mid-budget studio film uh, where rom-coms were just, as they've always been, sort of unfairly dinged and singled out uh, in greater criticism. But what happened was studios got to the point where they wanted everything to be a, you know, a Spider-Man movie that made a billion dollars or a movie that might win Best Picture that cost $10 million and was like a dark, dour drama. Um, and rom-coms were sort of 
uniquely disadvantaged by by that calculus. They were never losing money. I mean, there were still, you can find a hit rom-com for every year I cover in the book. Like they, there was never an era where they were gone, gone, but studios got a little more gun shy about putting money into stuff that they thought people might not go to theaters for, uh, which is where I think streamers come in. I think that's the big part of the reason why rom-coms are back. All of the things that made rom-coms look unattractive to people in that era, like at the studios was perfect for streamers. It's they're cheaper to make. You can still get big stars to do them because it shows off a different part of their personality. You can, you know, especially in COVID, they were easier to produce because, you know, smaller cast, smaller sets, that sort of thing. Um, and I think it's the kind of movie that look at what happens to the Hallmark Channel now when they when they do these huge rom-com marathons. People put it on in the background or they've had a hard week at work and, oh, Friday night, great. Netflix just put up a new rom-com. I'm going to open a bottle of wine. We'll order a pizza. This is going to be a nice kind of relaxing way to ease into the weekend. I, I think that that seems to be more successful than like the, the, I think the thing I do wonder about with death of rom-com stuff is like, if you put out when Harry met Sally now, would people go to theaters or, or are theaters now for spectacle and people want to watch more human sized movies at home? I think, unfortunately, to my mind, there's evidence that that is actually kind of where things are going, that people will turn up for Spider-Man on opening weekend because they don't want spoilers, but they don't, they're happy to wait to watch marry me or the lost city or one of those rom-coms that's come out this year at home. Um, so that may be where it's going, but they're, they're very much around. Although Lost City did pretty well in the box office. So, uh, I mean, yes, I'm looking now the most current numbers mid June, it grossed worldwide 187 million. So, uh, that's pretty, pretty so it's, it's good. I mean, the bottom line is, um, of course that's Sandra Bullock and we've already talked about how she can open films and And it's also an action movie. That's the other thing. That's the other thing we're seeing these, these rom-coms that take on some of the other genres as part of the whole thing. So where, who do you think, and, and I know I'm putting you on the spot with this one, uh, but so, you know, I'm the interviewer anyway, who do you think out there is Avail, you know, is making good or trying to make good rom-coms these days, given that we have, as you point out, I mean, Netflix all by itself, I think. Um, yeah. I mean, Adam Sandler, I don't get it. I've never gotten <laughs> Adam Sandler, although I have seen 50 First Dates. That's about the only one of his films I've seen. Yep. And yet he keeps making them. And every time I go on Netflix, it seems like there's another one. And he has the same people and Jennifer Aniston's going to be in them most likely. I mean, it's just, but are there others who are sort of got that little ability to do that? I think so. I think um, probably the most heartening thing to me, we've got a really good mix of old and new with rom-coms right now, because, you know, we've already talked about you know, Marry Me was a JLo rom-com this year and Lost City was a Sandra Bullock rom-com this year. You have, we have a Julia Roberts rom-com coming and soon enough we'll have a Meg Ryan rom-com with David Duchovny. Like all of the, all of the classic stars who could theoretically in a, in a Hollywood that is very difficult for women who age, as, as people tend as to do. Cameron uh, Diaz, you know, that'd be the one person I'd love to see in a rom-com again, but she's retired. I don't yeah, know she, that she's going to come back. She probably doesn't need to. Right. I, I don't blame her. It seems like her life seems very happy, but I'd be delighted if she made another one. Um, but I think I think it's a very promising sign to me that those those kind of classic rom-com stars at this point, at least classic, if you look at the 90s as a classic era, which I do, um, they're all coming back to the genre. Um, and I think that's very promising. But if you look at more recent talent, I mean, I think you take a younger generation of stars like, 
Emma Stone has made several very good rom-coms. Jennifer Lawrence made some very good rom-coms. I thought, you know, Paul Feig made Last Christmas with Amelia Clark when she was doing Game of Thrones. And I think that was a very underrated rom-com. I, I thought that was delightful. And you know, starting opposite Henry Golding, who is a terrific rom-com leading man. And I hope he keeps making them. They're uh, co-starring in a Jane Austen persuasion for Netflix later this year that I'm hopeful about. Um, opposite Dakota Johnson, who I think, again, there's like a lot of young talent. Um, and then and then there's people even, you know, deeper cuts. And that's that's where I think, especially on the streamers, rom-coms seem to be getting a little more diverse. You know, Happiest Season was Hulu's biggest movie. And that was Kristen Stewart, nominated for an Oscar last year, starring in a rom-com, a rom-com with her and another woman. Uh, Fire Island is terrific. Uh, that just came out on Hulu. Um, and again, it's that's about two gay men. Uh, and you've got Billy Eichner is later this later this year will have Bro, which is like a full-on Universal's putting out like a, it'll be in theaters, but it is a rom-com about gay men. Um, that I don't think that would have happened even 10 years ago. Um, no, in fact, it, that's probably the one air, the one thing, because you were talking, we were talking about Love Actually. Yeah. There's no gay people in Love Actually. There's no that gay relationships. And with everything that was in there, you would think that would have been one. I mean, we did get an interracial marriage, but we didn't get um, a gay yep. relationship. Richard Curtis shouldn't have cut it. It was, it was in the script. It was shot. You can see it on the DVD. Um, it's it's the headmistress who you see in the film who comes off as terrible, and then you go home and you find out she has an ailing partner who's dying of cancer. Uh, mm. It's not a long scene. It would have been nice to have in there. I would have, I'd have kept that and not the guy flying to America, but uh, Richard Curtis is the filmmaker, not me. And I'm thinking of somebody, and you actually wrote a chapter about Mindy Kaling because she has an interesting... I mean, her her work... She's good at writing. She writes comedies, but I wouldn't you know, like. For example, the one she did for um, for Amazon. Uh, uh, it's going. Pardon. Late night. Yeah, late night. Yeah. That's not a. It's not a rom com. Yep. At all, but it is an interesting. Uh, I think a good way of some. She shows to be somebody who number one might put in the um, the her her nationality but might not mm-hmm. and writes for other roles that she or other movie pr- properties that she's not even in so i really do feel that she's someone and 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 that could theoretically continue to do something where uh with her mindset and frankly her abilities as a writer and a comedian and we should also i mean that's the other the other part of the death of the rom-com thing is there were rom-coms, they were just unfolding on TV shows. I mean, at the same time as they were crying these in theaters, that was when there were shows like The Office, which is certainly like, that's Jim and Pam is Gen Z's big rom-com love story, the will they, won't they there, or How I Met Your Mother, you know, ran for many years telling a rom-com story about a guy who was obsessed with rom-coms. And that leads to The Mini Project, which is explicitly about a woman who loves rom-coms. Many of the episodes openly reference Nora Ephron, you know, Sleepless in Seattle, or You've Got Mail. And so, so you can see... You can see Mindy, I think Mindy Kaling is so, so funny and good. And I would love it if she made like a theatrical rom-com, starred in it, directed it, wrote it, I don't care, do all of it. Um, but, but I think you can see a lot of her rom-com stuff being, being expressed in TV instead. Yeah, I think she's definitely has come off as someone who she's not going to compromise. If yeah. that's why she's, she's, she's going to do it herself. And if that means it's on TV or on streaming, that's okay. Yep. But uh, I actually... Uh, late night was actually in the theater first, so I, that's I actually saw it in the theater before it showed up on Amazon. So um, it's great. I mean, that's an example of of somebody who you go back to Nora Ephron and and, and 
Nancy Myers and folks like that, that she is an example of someone who in pre- current time uh, is still is, is taking up the mantle, so to speak. Yeah. So um, what about rom-coms that just were right below the cut, but are personal favorites of yours that you didn't include? I know you mentioned while you were sleeping, and I have to admit, that's one that I can watch. If it's on, I'm going to watch it. And so uh, <laughs> yeah. and the fact that it's she opened that movie and she, she it's her. There's nobody else in that movie that you could point to and say, you know, that person is so lovable or so great that I I like their character. The characters are great, but they're yep. not her. Yep, I I really love that. Um, I, I, I I think it's pretty well known. I I sort of regret there were a few. You know, if the book was 20 chapters, it absolutely would have been. It. Um, so so maybe maybe I'll have to write a sequel. But, uh, but there are deeper cut rom-coms that I really liked. Um, and, and I think more recently, especially because a lot of them get dumped on streamers, um, it can be harder to find. I thought Plus One was terrific, um, with, which I think is still on Hulu. That's with uh, Maya Erskine uh, and Jack Wade, who Meg Ryan's son. So we got rom-com royalty in there. And that's, that's your very classic sort of rom-com setup where it's two friends who realize they have just this endless series of weddings unfolding ahead of them and decide they're going to be each other's plus one for all of them. And you know, would you believe that maybe there's a little more of a spark than they ever thought, but how can they navigate that? I, I thought that was so, so funny and sweet and, you know, the right amount of kind of modern, um, but there are, I, I would also encourage people to look a little harder for stuff that's, that wouldn't necessarily be thought of for the genre. There, there's a great, um, there's an anime uh, called The Night is Short Walk On Girl um, by, I forget, I forget the director's name off the top of my head, but I really really fun kind of almost surreal experimental anime rom-com. It's on HBO Max, if anybody has that, um, about a woman who can drink more than anybody kind of going on a pub crawl and then this guy trying to work up the courage to talk to her the whole time who's been crushing on her in their class. It's it's really weird. It's definitely unlike anything you've ever seen, but I thought it was this really like, it, it was such a reminder that like rom-coms can be a very expansive tent. It doesn't need to be the genre that you that you think of you know you can you can really take it in a lot of crazy directions and i really hope more filmmakers keep playing around with it because I, I think there's so much room there i'm finding it interesting with streaming services that we're starting to see some films appearing on multiple streaming services at the same time i mean you can't turn on a streaming service without seeing death on the nile on one of them even <laughs> though that's not a rom-com haven't watched it yet even though i sort of like murder on the or kenneth brown isn't murder on the or express although i the original is so much better so i'll be interested i haven't gotten to it and of course lost cities i think appeared on more than one maybe it's just on on one i'm not sure yeah, yeah. anyway um well I think the book is, it's the kind of book that people who have interest in these films are going to be, I mean, I know I read it quick. It went through as a really easy read, not in a negative way. And the stories are great. And it's, and we haven't even really talked about some of the people you interviewed for it, but you do talk about some of the folks. So it's not just, you were able to talk to people who were involved in many of these films. So um, that I think goes a long way to, to making the book even better. So uh, I really been talking. I mean, been talking to Scott Meslow about his book from Hollywood with Love, and I really think uh, it's a great book. And, and even though it came out in February, it's definitely a summer. I would call it a summer read if people like nonfiction or film books because it's the kind of thing you can read a couple chapters, maybe go watch the films that are mentioned. And these days of streaming, that's pretty easy. So I really appreciate the time you gave me, and uh, I hope the book is doing well and continues to do well, and hope maybe we'll see some other book from you at some point. Fingers crossed. Uh, nothing to announce yet, but uh, stay tuned. <laughs>
Thanks a lot, Scott. All right. Thanks, Joel. My pleasure. My great thanks to Scott Meslow for his time. I think that his book will give you more ways to look at such a well-known film genre. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.